Hey kids, the summer is almost halfway done. It's time to start thinking about those cozy nights near the fire with your favorite worker placement game and a glass of wine. So let's get all nostalgic about the future together. podcast, the flagship podcast of the All Ports Open Network. I'm your host, Joshua Wise, and with me, sitting across from me, staring at me with the eyes of a man who's seen too many video games and too many board games and far too many roleplay games, Mr. Blaine Martin. It's a dead stare. It's a dead stare. It's a dead thousand eyes. dice <laughs> stare. Shark's eyes. Yeah. <laughs> I've seen Thacko's <laughs> off the shoulder of Orion. <laughs> oh those days yep um how are you sir i'm doing well thank you good uh so for those who listen to the pdp 10 podcast all six of you um this is going to be our regular crew from now on yeah ben uh ben has left us we voted him off the island uh not from the network of course but uh because there's legal issues there and we need those sweet sweet podcasts with uh without involving a lawyer so uh but he uh he's a man who has a lot of a lot of draws on his time so uh we have relieved him of this heavy burden that he said he hated the listeners. And yeah, he had nothing but unkind things to say about you all, dear listeners. That's correct. We love you, though. We do. That's why we're still here. Um, but if you want to hear Ben's uh, just the highest pitch tones <laughs> voice, if you want to hear that that old creaky door voice of Ben's, <laughs> uh, you can still hear that on Pot of Love and New Avatars Allowed. Uh, and sometimes Refugees of Esmeralda. And sometimes Refugees of Esmeralda, although no time relatively soon, I think. No, no, as as long as his daughter is still down from Maine, I imagine that uh, he's going to be MIA. Yeah, and I think you have a number of things planned for the next month or two yeah. for refugees. Yeah, so I think we're going to be... We'll, we'll, we'll survive without him, but I think... Right. Uh, I'm excited about what we've got coming up in the next month or so. You want to do that part now? I mean, Ben's not here. We can kind of do whatever. Yeah, yeah. All beds are off now. Yeah. Uh, what? So what is coming up on Refugees of Esmeralda? So, so um, last week we started, or I had character creation for Dread. Uh-huh. Uh, so this week we'll be jumping into that. And the Dread game that uh, you and Haley were part of was just so much fun. Yeah. Um, we're, we're exploring the old bone mill mm-hmm. at the edge of town, uh, and you guys played right into that with making twin 11-year-old boys yep. uh, lost in the woods. Hansel and Hansel. Yeah. <laughs> so we got <clears throat> some really fun fairy tale tropes in there, uh, as well as just a whole bunch of horror stuff. Yeah. Uh, so I'm excited for that. And then I think after that, we'll probably have your English Eerie game. Yes, that is um, uh, hopefully going to happen very soon. So we've got like two months of horror, right. which I'm really excited about because I didn't anticipate this to be a horror podcast when I right. started it, but I'm all I about mean, it. It does seem that unless we explicitly choose to make a podcast that isn't horror, we're going to end up making a horror podcast. Yeah, if you and I are involved particularly, yeah. it's going to lean that way. And then, like, Sarah was part of our first group, and she's a horror fanatic, too. Yep. So we kind of, we, we were the reigning majority. Yeah, unquestionably. Uh, in the game that set the tone for everything else. Yep, absolutely. Um, great. And I don't know what's going, this is another thing now that Ben's not here. I have no idea what the heck's happening. Yeah, we'll have to have him send messages, I believe. So he was doing, uh, as of last week, uh, starting a kind of two part game where it started with star crossed Mm -hmm. and then the same two characters moved into pot of love. Oh, okay. Uh, and it's, uh, two gym bros from Springfield, Pennsylvania. Wow. Uh, that apparently attend your gym. Okay. Fascinating. Uh, so we'll see where that goes. Yeah, that is an interesting idea. Um, as a man who now, as I've as I've dropped some weight this year, as a man who has a lot of dudes come up to him at the gym and be like, yo, bro, you're looking good. 
that's <laughs> it's hitting close to home. It's hitting a little close to home, yeah. Um, uh, yeah. So on no avatars allowed, uh, we are going to be starting. Emily and I are going to start looking at some like video essays oh, about nice. uh, video games and stuff like that, and start engaging with some of that. I'm not sure which essay we're going to be doing this week, but uh, we are going to start kind of looking at some video game criticism. And talking about that stuff. Oh, that'll be really cool. I have yeah. a book that I just got um, because Vincent Baker, the creator of Apocalypse World, recommended it as okay. a good a good game for anyone who or a good book for anyone who wants to design games in general. Okay, but the book itself is specifically about video games, and it's by a uh, a queer woman mm-hmm. about how kind of marginalized voices are underrepresented okay. in the video game sphere, and how moving forward, if video games want to really become like an art as opposed to just a pop culture artifact. Uh They need to become more inclusive. It's true. Um, There is a question. I I have this question about incredibly marginalized voices that like, I'm a firm believer that you need to include all voices. I don't necessarily think it's true that a thing needs to be all encompassing of all voices to become an art books, movies, like all of yeah. these things. Yeah, I mean, I, she's referring more, I think, specifically to the field as a whole. Sure. Uh, and her call is actually, the book is called Rise of the Video Game Zinesters. Okay. Uh, and her call is to kind of treat video games like zines in the 90s. Okay. And to make, like, what the marginalized voices need to do is to make small... Oh, sure. ...indie games. You, so, and like, then, if right, you don't build your base there. <clears throat> yeah, if you don't know how to code, use, like, one of the game design right. softwares... And just make these, like, interesting, like, two-hour story games. I mean, that's very much, right, uh, what um, Gone Home is, right? Like, it's this two- to three-hour story about uh, a gay girl, right? Like, who is, you know, 15, 16, like, exploring the fact that she's a lesbian, like, exploring the fact that, like, she's into, like punk rock and like you know yeah zines themselves and all of that stuff and you know it's yeah and i think that's where you're gonna build your base because like you're gonna have a hard time selling the dude that just wants to play some call of duty right uh intense story about your marginalized life experience right um but if you can suck someone in with like uh here's a two-hour game just see what it's like to live in my shoes for two hours I think that's where you'll get a lot of power for that kind of base. I mean, yeah, to some degree. I think I think the real way that you build that base is you make those games, and then a lot of people don't play them. Um, and then you use those games as resumes to make your way into the mainstream, working for an EA or an Activision or a Bioware, and you bring your voice into those larger conversations. Right? Yeah. Like you, because it is going to be really difficult for someone who isn't already sympathetic to that perspective, who's going to sit down and be like, so wait, you want me to play a two-hour game where I'm like a transgendered like African-American? Yeah. Why? Like, I'd rather play this game where I'm shooting people, or I'd rather play this like 60-hour Japanese RPG. Like, um... If you're not already somewhat sympathetic to that, where you're open to saying, like, you know, I want that. Like, I want to open my mind more. Um, So until you get there, right, like, until you can inject that into your 60-hour Japanese RPG or your shooting game. Yeah. But you're going to need the people who can, like, genuinely present those stories to be respected creators right yeah yeah and it is it's a tough battle um and i think it's an important battle and so far i'm only like two chapters into the book but Mm -hmm. it's been pretty fascinating so far just thinking about that and like something that i don't tend to think about because i like i don't tend to play a ton of video games and i do is usually a fallout game so uh like i don't necessarily think about the underrepresentation of the video game genre and really right. like the gaming genre in general right yeah role playing games are getting a little bit better about that but that's really like a product of the last maybe 5 years right. that role playing games have become more inclusive of stories that aren't white men right colonizing the world can i all right i want to i want to talk about a game thing that i engaged with 
that I liked way more than I thought I was going to, but it's not a game. Interesting. It's a movie. And this may be one of the best video game movies I've ever seen. This is a movie that was described to me repeatedly as better than it had any right to be. And when I watched it, I went, yeah, this movie is way better than it has any right to be. And that is Jumanji Welcome to the Jungle. <laughs> I actually really want to see that. It's really good. Like, I mean, it's really funny. Yeah, it checks a lot of boxes that, uh-huh. like, I love the original Jumanji. Like, yes. we're both of an age where, uh-huh. like, we were young enough when that movie came out. And right. it's Robin Williams, so, like, obviously it's awesome. Right. But then it's Jumanji with, like... Uh, Amy Pond, The Rock, and Jack Black. Like, yes, yes I want to see Jumanji with those three people in it. Yeah, oh, and I'm, I'm a big Kevin Hart fan as well. Oh, yeah, so, that's like, right, Kevin Hart's in it. four people together. Um, and it is very much like, there are things in that where, like, there's, there's genuinely only one major thing in that movie where I was like, oh, nobody in video games would do that. And that's, like, the main character at the very beginning of the movie is playing, like, Street Fighter V. Um... It might be four, but I think it's five. Uh, and he's literally saying, punch, block, kick. And I'm like, no, who the hell does that? Yeah. And it comes back later in the movie, and I'm like, right, I see why they did this. So you would connect his video game playing skills with now yeah. rock, and he's punching and blocking and kicking people. Um, but otherwise, like, you have NPCs that have incredibly limited dialogue options people who just say the same things over and over again like vendors who basically (laughs) use the same line (laughs) over and over oh i want to see that so bad it's it's genuinely funny um and like you have to like there's even a moment where like i looked at the video game console that like jumanji sort of adapts to become a video game and i'm looking at it i'm going I don't know what video game console that is. And later when the kids find it, they go, I don't know what video game console that is. <laughs> I was like, okay, fine. You're not going to pass this off as like a, you know, a, a ColecoVision or whatever. Yeah. I actually haven't looked up whether or not it is a genuine thing. Just some weird console that even you have managed right, to exactly. not. Because I'm like, sure those exist. Like, like there are plenty of. There are consoles out there that I've not heard of, but there are far more of them that I've heard of that I've never seen. Um, that I'm just like, oh, this is a, you know, like, a whatever. Yeah, oh, that's what that looks like. Right. Oh, this is a ZX Spectrum. Um, so, like, yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. Like, and Sarah and I watched it, my girlfriend, and, uh, we were both like, wow, that was genuinely funny. And it does, it's the modern soft reboot, so it nods back to the original. Okay. Like, it, they're... There are basically two main nods back to the original where you go like, oh, okay, they're acknowledging... It's the same universe, it's the but same it's a universe, new story. It's the same game. Uh, we're going to nod in those directions and say, like, yes, that happened, but it's unimportant to this story. Um, but yeah, I really... That's awesome. We might be getting... Because I've heard good things, not that it was like a great film or anything, but uh-huh. uh, Rampage was oh. supposed to have been a lot of fun, too. Right. So we right. might be getting, like... Because I think part of the problem was a lot of video game movies are trying to take themselves too seriously. And just adapt exactly what was in the video game to the movie. Yeah, yeah. or go the opposite route, like... Um, oh, what was it? It was the game where you played the... I think it might have been just called Dungeon Keeper. Oh, okay, uh, It was yes. a Uwe Boll oh, yeah. movie with Jason Statham, uh-huh. where, like, the game itself was you played, like, a arch-villain who was designing a dungeon to kill heroes, uh-huh. and they made that into a movie, and it was just Jason Statham as, like, the plucky farmer who becomes a hero. Is that hero. Dungeon Keeper, or is that In the Name of the King? It's In the Name of the King is the movie name, okay. but it's, like, Dungeon Keeper, In the Name of the King, or something I, like okay, that. Okay, okay. Um, so it's meant to be gotcha. a an adaptation that has nothing basi- basically nothing to do with the original franchise. The, I mean, the amount of damage that Uwe Boll did to video game movies. He's not alone by any means. Those Tomb Raider movies are not great. I haven't seen the new one. I heard that was pretty good, actually. Um... But certainly, like, the Assassin's Creed movie is supposed to be just a walking, steaming pile of crap. Yeah, I heard that, too. Um, So, yeah, like, I... But this... So, I and I haven't seen um, Wreck-It Ralph. 
that but was I've been told that it's good. That was really good, and that's another one that's like very funny and tongue in cheek right. and self referential to the uh, like genre. And I think that's what we need from video game movies because yeah, sure. it is very rare, and mm-hmm. it can happen occasionally, but it's very rare that you're going to make like a really powerful, poignant movie sure. out of a video game. I will say, oh, so I will say this. The Nathan Fillion fan movie that just came out of Uncharted. Have you seen this? I yet? saw the trailer. It is really good. I mean, that is a perfect casting. Like, yes. That's what we've wanted since the first Uncharted game came right. out. Um, and so I guess he and a producer got together and just made this fan film. And it's it's really good. That's awesome. I love like I love Nathan Fillion because uh-huh. he's... I mean, he's not the best actor, but he's a fine actor. He's good. Uh, and he just, ha- like, does not take himself seriously right. and does stuff like that. And I love that about him. Yes. Um, I, did you ever watch Castle? I watched, like, the first season. So in the first season, this is the first season reference. The Halloween, the episode? Halloween episode? Yeah, yes, where he dresses absolutely. in a brown coat. daughter's film. like, what are you? It's like, space cowboy. <laughs> Uh, that, was, that made me so happy. I yeah. think that might have actually been the first episode I watched. Like, I don't think oh, I started okay. watching it when it came on. Uh-huh. But someone was like, you have to check out the Halloween episode. Yeah. And I watched it. And I was like, yeah, I'm going to go back and watch this now. Yep. There were a number of Firefly references in that series, but that is my favorite. Oh. Um, but yeah. Uh, oh, and there was one that just popped into my head. In the, oh, uh, the first Silent Hill movie. I, I remember that being pretty good. Right. I haven't seen the second one, but the first one is, like, okay. Like, they get the aesthetic down. Like, the story's kind of crap. But, like, they really get what Silent Hill kind of is. Yeah. Like. Yeah, and that was, like, the uh, the Resident Evil movies are at least the first two, I think. They're very successful. Yeah. They're okay. Like, mm-hmm. I didn't hate my life for seeing sure. the first two. Right. Uh, but they're ones that, like, went for a complete departure where yep. you're, like, have you played a Resident Evil game? Because right. this, this doesn't feel like Resident Evil. This just feels like a standard zombie film that uh-huh. you slapped like Resident Evil sure. term- terminology onto. Yeah, which I'm like, I love zombie movies, so I'm kind of okay with that. I mean, theoretically, you can argue that that's what Resident Evil has been though, since it's, Resident Evil like four. It's true. Um, they have moved away. Yeah, moved away from that kind of get the key and put it in the thing, and yeah, yeah. Um. Okay, cool. So we're going to, now that we've gone on this wild tangent. Yeah, um, yeah when we run this show, it's going to be, it's yeah. weird now because we're very tangential. Yes. Um, but that's cool. Yeah. I feel There's like no that makes us, here. makes uh, us endearing. It, indeed. Um, we're just going to keep telling ourselves that. Uh, so we're going to go into some news. Um, not promising this is like the most recent news. But we've been kind of looking at stuff for the past couple of weeks. Yeah, I tried to keep it to July announcements. Yeah, sure. Um, so do you want to you want to kick this off with some? Yeah. Like, so this news? is uh, interesting information for I think both of us and uh-huh. and potentially future things at here at uh, the All Ports Open Network. Uh, it's a year late, but um, Fantasy Flight Games just officially released the 30th anniversary edition of West End Games Star Wars. What? Uh, so it is a like an exact recreation of the first 1987 edition. Okay, so I feel like I've seen something like this before. I think someone else had it before Fantasy Flight bought it and they released something. Okay. Um, but Fantasy Flight released like a 30th anniversary. Uh, you la- 2017 would have been the 30th anniversary, so they're a year late. So this, okay, so I have seen this before, but I think I saw it when they announced it. Yeah, I think, so I think they announced it last year. Okay. And, like, in time to get the, like, this is the 30th anniversary. Right. One of the things I learned uh, reading about this that I did not know was that that original 1987 West End Games book uh-huh. was the first time that Twi'lek and Rodian both showed up in print. Really? Yeah. Before that, like, George Lucas had those names in mind, uh-huh. but it had never been printed other than, like, in the script. And I actually huh. probably not even in the script unless it was, like, Greedo is a Rodian because they never right. mentioned those race names. Right. Uh, but the first time that they appeared in print for, like, the general consumer audience was the West End Games book. There's so much that showed up in those West End Games for the first times, including, like, the name Mace Windu. Yeah. Like, that... That are completely, like, they had to retcon a whole lot of stuff to make it work. So, like, Mace Windu is, like, some sort of diminutive, diminutive, 
like alien creature. Yeah, that, I remember that. Um, that then they had to like retcon to say like, oh, he was it's named actually Samuel after L. Jackson, the, the Jedi. Um, um, but yeah, like that name had been floating around for a while. Yeah, and I like that was interesting. And there's apparently a bunch of examples of that where West End Games was the first place that right. like it actually went out to a mass audience, uh, written down. And apparently they also like Lucas Films considered the West End Games to be such a good source of Star Wars lore mm. that when Timothy Zahn began the Thrawn trilogy, the first thing they sent him was the West End Games book. That's awesome. As like a read this to get a feel for the Star Wars universe. Right. Uh, but so like that's pretty cool. I've never actually I don't think I've ever actually read that edition. I played second edition. Okay. Um, the like blue cover with Vader's right. face. Yep. Uh, so that's the edition I'm familiar with. So I'm. So you're familiar with the second edition first printing. And yes. There's a second edition second printing, uh, which has a smaller version of Vader's face. Okay. On the cover. Um, that first edition, that first printing, or, or that the first version of that uh, game, uh, or, or the game itself, not the game master's guide, was the very first RPG book I ever bought. Oh snap! For Twenty-five cents in a thrift shop. That's awesome. Um, and I have for years said it was the most expensive twenty-five cents I ever spent. <laughs> yeah, because now, um, now you've got that itch. Oh, I you gotta so catch them all. <laughs> I'm looking at this, and it's not just that manual. It's the manual plus the game master's guide. It looks like. Yeah, yeah. It's a double set of those first two books. Um. Oh no, it's the source book and the role play game. Um. I'm very tempted to get this. It's fifty bucks. It is. It is pricey if yeah. you already have some version of the game. Right, and I have both of those original books. The idea, like, the idea of getting this because you know if it does well, maybe they'll do some more. Uh, and it certainly seems like exactly the thing for me. Yeah. Yeah, and I have, like, the Fantasy Flight game is interesting, and I am I would like to try to, like, actually play it at some point, because right. I've listened to people play it, and I've read through the books. Uh, but, I mean, I, I at this point, I do still think that D6 is the best version. Fantasy Flight adds some cool concepts, uh, uh -huh. like, on a game theory level. Sure. Where, like, there are ways to succeed, but have complications and ways to fail. Okay. But, like, gain a better footing in the scenario, even though you failed at your direct task, okay. which I like as a storytelling point. Sure. Yeah. Cause you have different types of dice and they can come up with like successes or like, okay. Boons or banes where it's right. like you might've failed, but you get a couple boons. So like you give your buddy a bonus and like right. you get a bonus on your next roll, uh, or you could succeed, but get a ton of banes and uh -huh. like be like, shit's fucked. Right. It's a Pyrrhic victory. Um, so, I like, I like a, that idea as a storytelling yeah, right. point, but the D6 Star Wars is just so good. I wonder if there's a way to incorporate that basic idea into the D6, because they also had, they had the wild die. Yeah, it would be interesting if maybe, aside from the wild die, because the wild die is kind of its own thing. Right. Like, if you get, like ones on the like ones on the non-wild dice or sixes uh -huh. on the non-wild dice. Right. Whether you succeed or fail, those have like small in-game effects. I forget and we're gonna have to know this soon. So I'm I'm gonna I'm just gonna say this here. We're gonna be putting together a new podcast for this. It won't be out anytime super soon, because uh, we're hoping that'll be a more highly produced podcast. But we're gonna be doing a Star Wars RPG podcast. Yeah. Um, using the old West End Games uh, D6 system. I'm really excited about this. I am so amped for this. Also, uh, as, since I'm DMing this game, uh, I am... I'm really excited for you to see the adventure uh, because I think it's an adventure sort of tailor-made for your interests. <laughs> I think it brings together something you love with Star Wars oh. in a way that... Uh, Maybe it's a little unexpected. Excellent. I'm, so, I'm even more excited than before now. Right. So we're, we're actually in sort of the pre-production phase of that podcast, uh, getting together people who want to play and things like that. So if you're in the Philadelphia area and you're if interested in... You, yeah, if you like Star it, Wars. Reach out to us, podcasts at allpartsopen.com. Um, but yeah, I can't remember whether or not a, a one on the wild die was an automatic failure. I feel like it wasn't, no, but it, it created was. complications. So the six exploded. Right. 
the one you took away the one and the highest die from the other pool. That's right. Uh, so it made it you could in theory still succeed, right. but it made it real tough. But there were also complications with the thing. So if you rolled so you could take away the I think the highest die or you could create a complication. Yeah. Um because there were all these charts for like, oh you're flying a ship. You rolled a one. <laughs> we're gonna complicate things. So you could either fail the roll or, or that. Um and I loved looking at those charts and being like, oh this is engine failure. Oh like your weapon systems are down. Like, yeah, those kind of charts are so great. Even beyond just, like, their in-game use, just, right. like, for young GM to, like, start yes. thinking about how you complicate things that isn't just, like, I kill the player or right. I do damage to the player. Like, right. how do I complicate the scenario around them? Yeah, absolutely. And that's like, a tough skill to learn, and those charts, I think, are a great place to start. Just like the, you know, you're on your ship and, like, you roll that complication and, crap, your hyperdrive is down. So now, now you're just, just sitting there. Out of that roll of dice, you have a new challenge in front of you. Go fix that hyperdrive, and Hopefully then get you the, got heck the out parts, of here. buddy. Yeah, it's uh, uh, yeah, I love that system. Uh, I'm really looking forward to diving back into it. Um, so what do you got for us? So I have a less exciting uh, news story. This is something that Kotaku reported. Uh, that Luke Plunkett over at Kotaku reported uh, back on. Um, I guess this was, let's see, when did when did this article come out? It's about a week and a half ago, uh, but it's still relatively recent. Um, yeah, so uh, July 19th. The uh, This is about a board game that went up on Kickstarter that got canceled after some major plagiarism. Oh, wow. Um, uh, uh, accusations, and, and I mean, the evidence is pretty heavy. But it's also the... The board game, so the board game Overturn, Rising Sands, uh, was supposed to be like a miniatures heavy board game that was relatively inexpensive. Um, And basically they put up a ton of like computer renders of all of the miniatures. Okay. And said, and, but also said like, hey, this is super inexpensive. So we're going to do this and people backed the crap out of it. Like, people put a ton of money. Yeah, because, I mean, even if you're playing any kind of miniatures game and uh-huh. you allow proxying, then you might as well just buy the cheap miniatures and find a way to use them in your game, even right. if you never play the game itself. Right, exactly. Uh, so it turns out when you actually look at some of, like, you look at the renders versus, like, one or two of the actual models, the models themselves look nothing. Like, they're the, the same basic idea, but, like, they're not anywhere near the quality of the renders. Um, It also turns out that even though the people who ran the campaign said they were from Canada, they were from Pakistan, which is a country where you can't run Kickstarters from. Okay. And then finally, when you looked at the, uh, uh, the rules, there was a significant portion of the rules just copied from another game. Ooh boy. Even the logo of the company, the logo of the company named Foxtail, steals the Foxtail from their logo, <laughs> from the Firefox logo. So it is just levels on levels on levels uh-huh. of shady business. Yes. Uh, so it's... It's bad deal. Um... It's tough because, like, I mean, they raised, like, 150000 Australian dollars. Oh, wow. Um, and they're blaming their translator for, like, the plagiarism in the manual and all this stuff. But uh, I, don't, I don't know how that works. Yeah. So this is, this is an interesting thing because in a lot of ways – this is another like too good to be true. Yeah. Right. If you're if you're putting out a game, now I genuinely don't know why, uh, because I'm not familiar enough with this, why miniatures should be so expensive. Yeah, I mean the pewter ones I get. Sure. Pewter like pewter diecast stuff is expensive, but like right. the plastic ones, 
when you're charging an insane amount of money for plastic miniatures, right. it's just absurd. I mean, in a day of like, you know, printers at home. Yeah. You know, when I can 3D yeah, yeah. print something. I can buy a 3D printer for $200. Right. And then 3D print all the miniatures I want. Right. Uh, yeah, why is that? Why aren't they 25 cents each or whatever, you know? And I think we're I, th- I think we're now just probably going to start feeling the ramifications of 3D printers because mm-hmm. 3D printers it really hasn't been until the last couple of years that we've seen 3D right. printers that are like affordable to the average user. Right. Um and now that they are like why not just if you have any AutoCAD skill whatsoever why not just buy a 3D printer make an AutoCAD version of the piece you want and print it. Right. Even if it's I mean even if they're just placeholder tokens, right? Like Yeah. Even if it's just that, even, you know, like doing that just for your Kickstarter to create good looking stuff that says like, okay, so I can't necessarily produce as many of these. Yeah. I'm not going to be the mass producer, but like, this is what it's going to look like. This is the file. This is the print based on the file I am sending to the, the mass production warehouse. Right. Exactly. Um, I mean, and alternatively, you could create a game that has, like, cardboard tokens. Yeah. And then as a Kickstarter thing, you create these 3D printed ones, and then you just do do it yourself. Like, you know? Yeah. Like, uh, um, yeah, because you could easily, like, if you make it a special order, like, right. for 50 extra bucks, mm-hmm. I'll throw in 3D or about 100 extra bucks or whatever, right. how much ever it ends up costing. Uh, I will 3D print these and mail them to you. Right. The other thing that I think we're going to start seeing probably within the next five years or so in miniatures-based games is the, like, PDF equivalent of a book where you can pay, like, half the cost Uh to the publisher and they send you the 3D printer file and you print it yourself at home. Yes. I think that that is the way to go, right? Like, that's the way to say, like, hey, do you want... Like, I think what you need is a way to lock those files and i don't know if there's a good yeah way to do that stuff like if if i can go to a website uh and again i'm not a 3d printing person but like if i can sign into a website and have access to that file for the moment that i need to print it because if so then i create an account i pay 10 bucks i 3d print them all that i want right yeah but then it doesn't mean that the file can then get out there yeah, because that's the interesting thing with, like, the PDF market is, like, most right. places where you buy, like, PDFs of role-playing game books, water market. Right. But, like, that doesn't that – just, right. that just means if I email it to you, you're going to see my name printed on the bottom. Like, right. watermarking doesn't stop the, the transit right. of the file. I will say, though, if I have, like, available figurine, like – schematics right that i've gotten somewhere online whether that's just i paid somebody 50 cents for it on their like etsy page or whatever like what wherever that marketplace is yeah why do i care that much that it belongs to this game or not you know like yeah yeah it's not depending on your use of it and like the weird thing with like the 3d printed avenue will be like tournament play sure um, where like they don't allow proxies and stuff. Like, how, are they going to say like if you print at home, you can't use this in tournament play? Right. Because that's the only time it really becomes relevant. Is like if you want to play that game in a tournament and you're three D printing pieces. Like, so here's the thing that doesn't make sense to me about that because that doesn't give you an advantage. Yeah. Right. Like it. It's not like some sort of. Um, doping or something like that. Yeah. You know, like, it's honestly just a way for those companies to make more money. Right. Like a lot of the miniatures game companies are notorious for being very difficult to deal sure. with. I know games workshop who makes the Warhammer games. Uh-huh. I've heard they've gotten better, but like when our friend Tony opened a store, it was something like they needed an initial t- order of like $20,000 worth of material wow. to allow in order for him to be allowed to sell game workshop stuff. So this is boggling to me. Do you remember Reaper miniatures? Yeah. So we used to have a bunch of Reaper miniatures at a hobby store I ran when I was in my early 20s. Um, that was a manager of it. It wasn't my store. Uh and I remember it was Reaper and then it was something else. It was the one, I forget if Reaper had the green backs or if that was another company. But I would go through that catalog every week, and I would say, like, okay, I'm going to keep 
rotating stock of cool-ass looking figures. And they were like $4, $5 each, right? Like, they were not super... They had expensive ones. They had like yeah. $10, $11. But the pewter ones were like 4 bucks each. So if you've got a game that's got five $4 or five like pewter figures, your actual overhead on that is probably like $8. Because we were like... We were selling them, you know, for like five or six bucks, and they were selling them for two or three bucks. And yeah. They were making a profit off of that. So, yeah, it doesn't, that doesn't make a lot of sense to me, unless it's really just economies of scale, where someone like Reaper is making just tons and tons of them, and therefore they can be that cheap. Yeah. Yeah, in Warhammer, I know a big part of it is like the size of the armies is sure. where it gets expensive. Yes. Is like your armies aren't four or five guys; your armies right. are like thirty or forty guys. Right. Uh, so your base set for a Warhammer yeah, you're like faction is going to be like a hundred, hundred fifty bucks. Uh, which is like I've never got into Warhammer right. because of that. Like right, I would sure. love to try Warhammer, and I've like I played Warhammer with my brother's friends and used one of their armies, and uh -huh. it's a cool game. Right. But I have zero interest in spending $150 on miniatures I'm going to have to paint. Right. Well, this is where I think, right, AR is going to come in to be a big deal for, like, games like Warhammer. They have to evolve into AR-friendly games where I can buy a starter squad or whatever for, you know, 10 bucks, 15 bucks. Paint it however I want, right, because it's AR. I yeah, just, Go in and be like, this section's now blue. This section's now red. Um, have my away colors and my home colors. Um, and, like, get terrain, have a starter set of terrain, all that stuff for, like, 30 bucks or whatever. And then not go into the material, like, the physical stuff. Yeah. And if that, if they could do that, right, then they have no overhead. Yeah, right? like yeah, pass the the pewter company. Yeah, pass the initial creation, like, paying right. the developers to develop it. Right. After that, like... It's all housed in the cloud. Right. Exactly. And I, I feel like that's where tabletop gaming has to go. Or at least like the super heavy... Um, because who who wants to set up Arkham Horror or Firefly or whatever? Yeah. When... Yeah, there are those games that take as long to set up yeah. as to play. And like, I still play them because sure. they're fun, but right. like, I don't want to do that. And I play them less than other games because of that. I would play Axis and Allies... So much more frequently than I currently do now, which is zero. Yeah. If as an AR reality, I could just say like, okay, set the game up, save the game. Like I can walk away and not... I can walk away. We can, we can come back to this exact game in two weeks. Um, I would totally do that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, the AR technology is there. It's not ubiquitous in the way and like cheap in the way that it needs to be. But in five or six years that I feel like that's where we've got to go. Yeah, yeah, because gaming is, and, like, there's always going to be, you know, there's the people like me who own records. Like, sure. I will always play tabletop role-playing games because yeah. I like playing tabletop role-playing games. But there's also, like, Roll20, and Roll20 is awesome because yes. sometimes I want to play D&D &D with my buddy Toby who lives but out on the West Coast. imagine merge them yeah. right, into that AR situation where your game master screen is a virtual item. Yeah. The character sheets are virtual items. You can move information between players without them ever knowing, right? Like the passing of the note then yeah. becomes as easy as it is on roll 20. And yeah. No one else knows. It's so awesome. I'm excited. I'm excited for that kind of world. Yeah, and absolutely. Terrified. And then your map is just virtually on the table and you're moving that around and some players see what, I mean, splitting a party at that point becomes so much easier. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, that's the world we want to be in, gaming-wise, for, like, tabletop games. Uh, but, yeah, so I, I guess in the long... I guess my upshot to this is, like, we're not there yet, obviously, and things like Overturn, Rising Sands can are still things we have to be wary of. Yeah. If it's too good yeah, to be Yeah, and that's something is. I've heard, apparently, buying games, particularly on Amazon, uh -huh. uh, if you're not buying it from Amazon themselves, okay. is tricky because there are a lot of people that pirate board games. Oh, really? Um, And they've gotten very good at it because of things like 3D printing sure. and stuff like that. 
Uh, so like there are small things you can find. Like usually it's like a typo somewhere okay. that reveals that this is a pirated version. And I mean, in the grand scheme of things, that's not necessarily super relevant to you as a person. Like right. it's still the game and it plays exactly the same way and it's got all the same pieces. Right. It's relevant to the publisher who's oh, yeah. then not getting, and that's, I, I the think creators who make this. Yeah. For yeah. me, more relevant for indie games. Like, mm-hmm. I'm going to feel a little bit less bad about Hasbro not getting my money sure. from a pirated copy I buy, sure. but like, and I, the, again, this is not like me necessarily choosing to buy a pirated copy. Right. It's the internet scam. Um, but like for small indie gamers, the ability to pirate games so easily now is right. definitely going to cut into profits. I, yeah, I'm, I'm not a fan of, of kind of anything that's pirated. I, I like, as long as the thing is available in a like in an easy way to get, and by easy way like a reasonable price, um, you know, artists can set their own prices for things. Yeah, actually, actually, in existence, like right. I've... like here's a good example, right? I bought. We went through Tickmania last year. That's right. We went through crazy Tickmania. We watched the Amazon series, then we wa- watched the Fox series. And then we started watching the cartoon, and you can get season one and season two on DVD. You can't get season three, as far as I can tell. I think it might exist, but nobody has it. So I downloaded it. Yeah. uh, Come and get me, coppers. Yeah. Um, (laughs) uh, But yeah, like, if it was available, I would happily download it, or I would happily pay for a service that would let me stream it. Yeah, like there are old role-playing game books that like right. I have found ways to download PDFs of mm-hmm. because they don't exist. But like D&D, on the other <laughs> hand, uh, has started releasing PDFs of their old first and second edition books. Oh, wow. Uh, and those I'll buy because <laughs> right. for $7, I can get the old Planescape box set. And like I will give them the money because I love right. Planescape. <laughs> but like the West End Games Star Wars yep. books, they haven't done that yet. And there are a couple of those books that I've downloaded. Oh, I mean, I have the entire collection of West End Games in PDF, but I'm constantly trying to buy the physical copies as well off of eBay. But nobody involved in that is getting any of that money. Yeah, like, like West End Games doesn't, it doesn't exist, exist anymore. anymore. So like, what do they care if you're right. pirating PDFs of the book? Exactly. So like, I have... Like, I, my ideal situation, because I actually don't like looking at PDFs for RPGs. I think it's actually more cumbersome than looking at a book. Uh, but eventually my goal is to have literally every West End Games book for Star Wars there ever was. Uh, until then, if I need to look something up, I'm going to look it up in a PDF. Yeah. Uh, because they haven't made it like, hey, pay five bucks and get this official searchable, like... Yeah, the searchable PDFs are awesome because that, oh, yeah. that makes it a lot easier. And I use PDFs usually for big picture planning where I need uh-huh. to jump between like 10 different books. Sure. If I'm just like designing a dungeon for my Tuesday group, right? I break out the DMG right. and sit there at a table with it and have the monster manual. But when I need to do like, what is what is my plan for this next arc of my game? Sure. Uh, I usually use PDFs because then I can have 15 PDFs up that yes. I'm jumping in between. right. right. Um, and it's just nice for like, if I'm going somewhere and want to play a role-playing game, I have mm-hmm. at the this, whole library. Yeah. At this yeah. point now, thousands and thousands right. of PDFs. Yeah. I mean, that is, that is the benefit, right? Like you walk into, I might walk into a game of D and D with like three manuals with me, but if I have PDFs of the stuff, then, then I don't, I could be like, Oh, it's in that manual. Let's go yeah. check it out. Uh, yeah, and that's what I would do when I had a West End game, Star Wars game, going on for a while down in Washington, D.C. a couple of years ago. And so I would bring a couple of books, but then I would just have the PDFs ready to go. Yeah. Sort of, like, questions about... Yeah, there's no stuff. no more, like... Our, when I started playing West End game, Star Wars, our, I think I mentioned this on the podcast before, our GM, Brad, would bring, like, four milk crates... Oh, wow. Full of books. Wow. Especially like session one where we're making characters. Right. Uh, he would be like, I have all of the books. Right. Um, you can play whatever you want. Yeah, sure. You have to find it. Right. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, But yeah, so like, and that's something that what we used to do as D&D players, like, especially 
Like when mm-hmm. I, I ran like much crunchier things because I was younger and sure. had the mental bandwidth to do that. <laughs> I would roll up even if I had to travel to GM like with like 15 books, right. like two backpacks full of books slung over my shoulders. Yeah. And PDFs make it so much easier. Oh, I mean so much. E- it also means that like if you don't want to do that, people don't have to come to you. Yeah. Right. Like that that idea of like, OK, well, we, the, the library is at Blaine's. So let's. Let's do it there. Yeah, and I like with PDFs too. Like I can print copies, like specific pages. So like uh-huh. if I need this, if I know I need this page as a reference, right. yes. But it's just one page out of the entire book. Right. I can print that page and bring it with me. Yep. Yeah, that's. I. I mean, if if we do get to our glorious AR future, then even the getting sitting around the table, then becomes a thing that can happen with people who aren't there. Yeah. Right. Like that, that very clear experience of, I look over at you and we see Ben sitting in that chair. And we just see Ben, a hologram of Ben staring at you. Um, a flickering blue hologram of Ben. Uh, help me, help me, Josh and Blaine. You're my only hope. Too bad, Ben. Um, (laughs) uh, so yeah, that's, uh, do you have any more, any more news? I do. Um, so the big news. Okay. That I found out, um, and this was before I, so before I left for the, the wilderness of Maryland, uh, there was an announcement that Wizards of the Coast uh, was planning on, for the first time, releasing non-Forgotten Realms campaign settings for 5th edition. Okay. That was the, the initial tidbit was just that, like, right. we are going to start doing this at some point. Something other than Forgotten Realms... Something that so did they not already do a Ravenloft for so kind of okay it is just Barovia it's the Curse of Strahd it's like an expanded out version of the Castle Ravenloft adventure okay so it's set in Barovia kind of like the adventure hook that it gives you Mm -hmm. is like you're in the Forgotten Realms and now Barovia kind of anchors temporarily to the Forgotten Realms I see okay um. So, but Ravenloft is, I believe, a setting that you can release, or Barovia specifically in Ravenloft is a setting you can release content for on the DMs Guild. Okay. Because uh, you can only release content on the DMs Guild for official Wizards of the Coast 5th edition settings. Okay. So, right now, there's no Longcomer, there's no uh, Dragonlance, no Spelljammer, no, okay. no Greyhawk. So, they announced finally that they're going to start doing that. Okay. I come back to find out that in November, they're releasing two campaign settings. Oh, wow. In addition to the two adventures that I talked about on our last news segment. Uh, So today is the official announcement later today. But Wizards of the Coast loves to, like, tease Uh and give you a pretty good guess at what they're going to do. Okay. So the first tease comes from what some people are thinking might have been a fuck up on Amazon's part. Okay. Uh, There is just a flat out Ravnica source book okay. for D&D. Ravnik is a Magic the Gathering yes, world. right. Um, that is uh, going to be released in November. That's wow. on Amazon right now. That's interesting. Uh, so that might have been a screw up on Amazon or Wizards just was like, if you're looking close enough, we're telling you right now, right. Ravnik is one of them, which is an interesting precedent because they've done like small books that are like Magic D&D crossovers, but okay. this would be the first like... right. A couple hundred page source book. So before you tell me the second one, I want to. So as a as a, kind of a fan, not like a hardcore fan, but like a fan of old like kind of. So did you ever play the Longcomer board game? I did not. So I want to say Longcomer is a city in the Greyhawk universe. Um, and I've been looking for this board game for a while. I have it somewhere in an attic, but like it's like sixty bucks on. Uh, eBay and stuff like that. But that, like, sort of lower fantasy, uh, more of a grittier fantasy, uh, slash Dragonlance, slash stuff, I hear that, I hear Ravnica, and I go, okay, that's fine, but if I'm a D&D fan from way back, I want an older setting, too. Yes. You're not getting that this time around, buddy. Okay, all right. (laughs) Uh, and uh, so I have, I think it's cool that they're doing wizard, uh, magic D and D crossovers. Like I like a lot of the D- magic settings and I think it'll be cool to see those. Sure. Um, so the one that based on kind of like teaser speculation is the next one will be Eberron. 
Oh. Which is the most recent new campaign setting uh, from the 3.x world. Sure. My o- my only complaint is that I feel like Ravnica and Eberron might be a little too similar. Sure. Uh, they are both like ma- worlds where they have advanced technology through magic. Right. With like big cities. Uh, in Ravnica, the, like, the entire plane is just one big city, kind of like Coruscant okay, in Star sure. Wars. Um, and in Eberron, there's plenty of wilderness, but there's like these big, crazy cities like Sharn that have these massive towers that okay. are essentially skyscrapers. Um, and there's a lot of guild intrigue in both. Okay. Like a big part of what drives both of those stories is that there are these guilds that are always fighting. So like what we're getting is kind of like two, like it's the D&D version and the magic version of the same setting. When was the last time that they put out a Dragonlance campaign setting? A third party okay. company that Hickman and Weiss worked for okay. put out, they got permission during like the three, third edition. I forget if it was third or 3.5 okay. to put out a Dragonlance book. But no official, no D&D official like Wizards of the Coast release since second edition. That's crazy. Yeah, I I feel like people would go insane for a Dragonlance. Yeah, and like I was never um, like a huge Dragonlance fan. Right. I don't hate it, I, sure. but it's not one of my favorites. But like it is, uh, if not, it's one of the most popular. Right. Certainly, like m- probably not more popular than the Forgotten Realms, but no, like I mean, second like, to and that's to a degree due to like atrophy. Right, like yeah. you had Dragonlance was massive, and you had all of these books in the '80s and the early '90s, and then really not a lot happened. Yeah, I think I, I'm not in 100% certain, but I think what happened was there there was some issues between Hickman and Weiss and TSR. Sure, uh, because I remember reading in Ravenloft, Hickman and Weiss had left TSR at that point. Okay. Um, and when Lord Soth got brought into Ravenloft, right. like they threw a fit because they right. were like, no, Lord Soth would not yeah, go to Ravenloft. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I believe that there were copyright issues and okay. things like that, that like maybe Hickman and Weiss had to be involved in some way in anything that got published in the Dragonlance world. Gotcha. So when they left, it became something that right. like wizards couldn't do. Cause like I said, it was a third party company working with right. Hickman and Weiss that released the third edition Dragonlance. That's interesting. I, ha- I have a buddy, my, my buddy, Matthew, um, who I want to say it's Dragons of Summer Flame, which was the fourth book in the trilogy of you know like uh dragons of autumn yeah. twilight uh dragons of winter night and then dragons of spring dawning that whatever that original dragonlance trilogy was years later they put out a fourth book which is kind of where this the whole thing kind of died for me which was when they were like it's the end of magic and there's new magic and raceland doesn't have magic anymore and he's wearing this mask um but my friend Matthew, in the hardcover book of uh, or the hardcover version of that book, wrote the one of the appendices on like the divinities. Oh, nice. of the world. So if you get your hands on a hardcover copy of that book and you look at the appendices, there's a there's a thing by Matthew Martin, who's a who's a good buddy of mine. Uh, that we we I for a Christmas one time <laughs> I bought like eight copies of it <laughs> and surprised him at our like group Christmas party and had him do a book signing. Oh, that's awesome. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, Dragonlance, I think might have the most like radicalized fan base mm. where like Dragonlance fans are hardcore Dragonlance fans. And like, I know a couple people who refuse to run anything but Dragonlance. Oh, that's interesting. Like my only real experience with Dragonlance was uh, playing with my brother's friend, Scott, uh-huh. who basically refused to run anything ever that wasn't Dragonlance. Huh. I will say that, like, so I tried to go back to read that first Dragonlance book years later, and I went, oh, no, no, this is not well written at all. Yeah, uh, most of those D&D books. There are a small few that, like, hold up all right uh-huh. is the best I can say. Right. Like, the Salvatore novels, uh-huh. I went back and reread the first Driz novel. Sure. And I was like, this isn't as bad as I was anticipating it would be. Right. It's not great. Right. But I was expecting it to be, like, real bad. Right. And it was okay. And I will say, that first Dragonlance novel now, 
Like, I think I read it when I was 13, and I loved it. But the thing about, like, Dragonlance is it's so deeply connected to a party, right? Like, it is the most Dungeons and Dragons-y of the, like, and I, I haven't read the Forgotten Realms books, like, but for me, Forgotten Realms is a setting with, like, two main characters, Elminster and Drizzt. Yeah. Um, Dragonlance is Tannis and Tasselhoff and Flint and, like, um, yeah, you know, and it's like Sturm and all of these characters who work together. Yeah, it's and that comes, I think, from the direction, the, the directionality of release. Sure. Where Dragonlance were novel, if I remember correctly, were novels and then became a campaign setting. Well, it's sort of, it's sort of a little bit that and a little bit the other thing because the characters are all people that Hickman and Weiss and their party played. Okay. So like Raceland was a PC at one point. Okay. That makes so a lot of sense. Off, right. So like some of the scenes from the books are things that they role played. Yeah. And so it's an unofficial campaign setting. Then it becomes books. Then it becomes a campaign setting. Um, Cause forgotten Realms started as a campaign setting right. and then became novels. Right. So it has that feel of like, and that's the tough thing with the forgotten realms and you DM in the forgotten realms is like, how much do you bring in that lore? Cause right. more so than any other world in the forgotten realms or in the, in the D and D pantheon, the forgotten realms has so much lore because yes. there are so many novels and so many books. Right. And like, how do you do that? Like, do you have Drizzt show up in your game? Right. Yeah. The answer is no. Right. As someone who has had Drizzt show up in my uh -huh. games, the answer is no people. <laughs> Um, Elminster, maybe if you uh -huh. can find a cool hook, but right. never Drizzt. Yeah, I, I can't actually remember because Paladine is the great, like, you wouldn't put it this way now, but he was sort of the great white god, like the god of light. And, yeah. And, like, um, and uh, he had a, he had sort of a bumbling, like, avatar uh, who sort of helps the. He's sort of the, the bumbling version of Gandalf, essentially. Okay. Uh, and I'm trying to remember his name, but um, but you had all these characters who formed the heart of the story, and then you have a world that's sort of built around that. Now, the difficulty for that, for at least for, for me, was that then the, the setting is about the characters. I didn't really care that much about Kryn itself as a yeah. world, right? So it's sort of the opposite problem. Yeah, which then as a player, you have a hard time engaging because right. you're not. Because you want to, like, you want to just go to, like, the, the you know, wherever um, Tika is serving spiced potatoes, you know? Like, yeah. you go to those places where Karaman is, is there now running the place and Raceland is off somewhere. You want to see those people. Uh, otherwise, it doesn't really feel like Kryn. So it is hard then to run your Dragonlance campaign, I would imagine, Without bringing in at least some little nod to like, yeah, you know, Tasselhoff Burfoot shows up. Um, so yeah, I guess it's a little disappointing to me that they're not going back farther. I would have liked if if they're gonna do this like, and I imagine now this becomes the release schedule because that's usually how they kind of reveal their release schedules. Okay. Um, like if we're going to get a magic and a D and D setting, right? Maybe every November, every mm. other November, however they're going to do it. Um, I would have liked to have seen an older one. Right. Um, even if you wanted to go weird with it and have like a city setting. So you're releasing kind of like similar themed, like a planescape or sure. something that existed in second edition. Right. Yeah. Um, a lot of people were hoping for Spelljammer because there's a weird obsession with Spelljammer okay. on the internet. Uh, and I would have been fine with it. Like sure. Spelljammer is fun. Um, uh, like Thor Ragnarok made me really want to play like that uh -huh. kind of game. Yeah, sure. Um, but anything like that, like, I would have liked to have seen an older setting. Right. Um, and Eberron, like, I liked Eberron when it came out. Mm -hmm. And I, like, I'm I'm not, like, an Eberron hater. But I think Eberron was, like, when it came out for me, it was like, oh, this is cool and new. And it's all, like, magic punky. And it's this gritty right. world. But there's, like, magic tech. And now I'm like, eh. Were all of the, like, representative characters of 3.0 from Eberron? No, they were actually Greyhawk. They were Greyhawk. Okay. Yeah. Um, they released a set of novels about them okay. that were real bad. Were they? 
uh even like i think i was 15 14 or uh-huh. 15 when the first one came out and i read it and i was like yeah this is a shit show <laughs> uh, i read the second one hoping because they were really short they were like uh-huh. maybe 150 pages tops oh, wow so i read the second one hoping that maybe it got better right. and it didn't and nice. i was like i'm done yeah they released i think like 30 of them or something wow. like that um but they were not good that's crazy um but eberron came out i think eberron might have come out when 3.5 came out okay and it was a big deal because they did like a world designer search and like you submitted oh okay a bunch of people submitted stuff um and eberron is the one that won and it was cool and it like it's still cool but like a Mm -hmm. lot of a lot of it feels like maybe we're just being cool to like we're doing stuff just to be cool sure like there's an entire tribe of halflings that ride dinosaurs yeah i'm like okay like right my my initial reaction is like, yeah, that's cool, but like, is that interesting for enough for a campaign right. setting? Man, I don't want to be an old fogey, but throw me a Kender any day. I mean, Kenders know, like, are the best. Um, <laughs> I'm not, I might not be a huge Dragonlance fan, uh-huh. but I love Kenders. Yeah, I love role playing Kenders. Sure. Uh, I feel like Ben's a real Kender. He is kind of RPer. Yeah. Um, I found back in the day, uh, a it was like a 200 page random kender pocket list wow so like anytime you used your kender pocket ability and could like pull out something random wow. it was like a 200 page list where you like rolled multiple times right, so yeah. like narrow down which chart you're gonna roll on until you finally got to a specific uh-huh. chart of 100 items sure it was so much fun that's awesome for like the fourteen-year-old Blaine who like yeah. really wanted to play a Kender who just pulled the most random crap yep. out of his pockets. Yeah, it was amazing. That's awesome. All right, so I guess that's gonna. I'm gonna pull the end of this show out of my pocket. Yeah, just. Uh, I don't feel good about that. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, if you have any comments or questions, why don't you email us at podcasts at allportsopen.com. Uh, and that'll do it for this week. So, uh, hey, check out our other shows, uh, No Avatars Allowed, Refugees of Esmeralda, Pot of Love. And, uh, you know, we'll see you again soon, I guess. Or, he- or we'll speak at you and yeah. you'll hear us. We'll yell in your direction. We'll yell into these microphones and it will come out into your ear holes. Um, so, for Mr. Blaine Martin, I've been your host, Joshua Wise, telling you until we see you again, we're going to keep that signal strong.